Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 to the very end of the chapter. We'll close this chapter out today and get into a new chapter and a new story from which to learn. 2 Kings chapter 4, as you're turning there, Becky is with all of my daughters down in Galveston. So that's all right. We were okay before. So hope to have her back tomorrow. As I was studying for my lesson Saturday, about 9 o'clock in the morning, of course, I got a phone call, had to go work a fatality crash. And as I was trying to sleep last night to get ready for this, I got called out for another one. And I don't know if this fellow's going to make it or not, but some drunk hit him head on, and the drunk took off on foot, and that's the way it goes. So anyway, if I sound a little disoriented up here, it's because I'm lacking sleep. And I got to bed about 5.30 this morning. I got a little bit of a nap. All right. Well, we are in 2 Kings chapter 4, and now we've come to the end of the chapter. And to summarize how last week's study shows us the big picture when it comes to man and God's word, consider this. God gave us good doctrine. Satan persuaded man to poison it with bad doctrine. God was merciful and he put good doctrine, that is the gospel, into the pot. And now there's no harm in the pot. The gospel cleans up all of the mess that the devil has made. And I'm so thankful for that. No matter what the devil does, no matter what kind of wild gourds he and his false teachers put in the stew, the gospel, and in a larger sense, God's word overcomes all of that. And it's because God's word became flesh and dwelt among men, and he has prevailed through his word. Now let's look at verse 44, and if you were not here or if you didn't watch the lesson last week, I encourage you to go back and watch that on Facebook so you'll understand what I'm about to say in verse 44. This little ending verse is so important. It says, So he set it before them, and they did eat, and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> After Elisha had put the meal into this bad stew that had been poisoned with these wild gourds, he gave it to the people, and they ate, and there was leftover, just like God said there would be. It said, so he said it before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of God. And the reason this last verse is so important is it shows follow through. It shows that feeding these people was done just like the man of God said it would be done because God said that this is how it would be done. So all the man of God did is say what God said would happen. And it happened. It was set before them. They ate and they had leftovers. So we see a miracle right here. God did through the prophet Elisha. And let me ask you, should it be necessary from that day on 
that Jesus ever repeat this miracle again. It shouldn't be necessary. But he did it. He did it twice, in fact, in just in the book of Matthew, where he fed the 5,000 men with their wives and children, and then again with feeding 3,000 men and their wives and children. He repeated this same miracle. And the answer is no, it should never have to have been repeated. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints should have all been able to read this story right here and seen that if God did it one time, that's good enough. They should have been able to say, it's good enough for me that he did it once. I know he can do it again. But for carnal man, it seems that nothing God does is ever enough. The carnal mind will soon wander away from what God has done. And although there are many miracles that God repeated in the Bible, many wonders he performed over and over and over, there's one that he did only one time. Well, there are probably a few. You could say the creation, he did that one time. But the one he did one time, and that can never be repeated, is that he sent his son to die on the cross for sinners, and he raised him again from the dead. One time, never to be repeated. Those Old Testament sacrifices, as we've learned in over the years of studying the Old Testament, those Old Testament sacrifices were repeated over every day, in the morning and in the evening, in the morning and the evening, and then at certain festival times, and then during the high day of atonement, once a year, as we've studied. And those sacrifices should have been sufficient to show people they are sinners. They should not have had to have been repeated over and over. But the people continued to sin. Their sins continued to need atonement. And even though all of those bulls and goats who were sacrificed and whose blood was poured out at the altar... All of those could never take away sin. The people were still in their sin because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So what hope did they have in the Old Testament of being saved? They had to look toward something, a sacrifice, that would happen one time that could take away sins. So the Old Testament saints, if you have not learned this, if you're asking, how do Old Testament saints become Christians? How were they saved the same way we are? By looking at the same cross where the same Savior died, and in their case, they were looking ahead, believing that what God said, what he promised in Genesis to Adam and Eve, what he promised to Abraham and so forth, that one day that Savior would come. He prophesied of it in the book of Isaiah and on and on. Those Old Testament saints believed in that once and for all sacrifice when Jesus would die on the cross. Now, the spiritually minded man on the other, other hand is not looking for God to do more miracles to prove his grace. The spiritually-minded man, and that includes spiritually-minded woman, it's together, 
the spiritually minded person is content to dwell on that once and for all salvation that's given to everyone who believes what Jesus has done for sinners. We're content with that. If you're not content with the gospel, then you need to examine what gospel it is you're believing. Jesus died and was buried and rose again for our justification. He put away our sins. I'm content with that. I don't expect God to do another miracle to show me that I'm saved. He did it right there at Calvary. He applied it to my account when I believed, and he did the same thing if you've trusted in what he did at Calvary. All right, and it was according to the word of the Lord, just like God said. Now let's move on to chapter 5 and verse 1, and we have a new study today. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. There are two Naamans mentioned in the Bible. One Naaman, not this one, one Naaman was from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember Jacob was, his name was changed to Israel, and the twelve tribes of the children of Israel came from Jacob's sons. And Benjamin was the youngest son, and in Genesis 46, 21, that's where you see his name mentioned, Naaman, a son of Benjamin. And the name Syria, in verse 1, is translated from the Hebrew word Aram, Aram. And Aram was one of the sons of Shem. Do you remember the three sons of Noah? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Shem was the one from whose loins the children of Israel came, along with other Semitic peoples, S-E-M-I-T-I-C. That's where Semitic comes from, is the name Shem. So I'm not entirely certain that this Naaman in our text is a Gentile. He very well may be. It appears that he is, but I wouldn't say he's a Gentile without any argument. But let's learn about why he's mentioned in the Bible. We do know Syria was a Gentile nation, even though it shouldn't have been. God gave that land to his people. And what did his people do? They continually sinned, and they gave their land away to their enemies. God delivered them into the hands of their enemies, and then they would turn around and have to fight to get that land back. And that's what they're still having to do today. As their land gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and there are more people who invaded and want this part and this part, it's it's not going to stop until it's trodden underfoot. And that's for another study. But the last time we read about Syria is in 1 Kings chapter 22, not too long ago, where King Ahab was slain by the Syrians. Remember the, the prophet told him, your blood is going to drain out here in the place where you had Naboth killed in the vineyard. That's where you're going to bleed out. 
And sure enough, during the battle with the Syrians, he was shot, Ahab was shot, and they brought him back in his chariot, and he died, and his blood leaked out of the chariot, and the dogs licked it up, just like God's prophet said it would happen. It says in our text about Naaman the Syrian that he was a great man with his master. Another translation has that he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Now, who was his master? He was the king. He was captain of the host, and as we've discussed before, in the Bible, the word captain doesn't mean the same thing as it does in the U.S. military. In fact, I think between the the Navy and the Army, even though both have a captain, the captain in the Navy is of a higher rank, if I remember that right. But in either case, it's not like it is in the Bible where the captain is the one who's in charge. We might actually call the the captain a general or something to that effect. So Naaman was way up the totem pole in military structure, and his boss was the king, kind of like the the general's boss would be the commander-in-chief of all armed forces, right? We ha- If we had a, a four-star or five-star general still living, then he would answer to uh, somebody higher than he is in the government. All right, so that's somewhat what we have here. How your king sees you is critical if you're the leader of his army. The king wants a winner. He wants a leader with integrity. He wants a leader who's loyal to him because ultimately the success of that military leader determines the success of the king, doesn't he? If the army loses, the king loses. If the army loses, the king has no reason to believe he will remain on the throne as the enemy forces overtake them. So to be a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master was important for Naaman. Now let's look at that word honorable. That word honorable is normally translated as the words lift up or bear up. And you see that phrase, bear up the ark, in the story about Noah there in Genesis, where it said the floodwaters bear up the ark. That means they lifted it up. Just as Naaman bore up the army, he lifted it up. And if we apply the verse about the waters bearing up the ark to our text, that's that's the image that we get. So that made him an honorable man. He lifted up the army. In other words, he didn't put it down. He didn't disgrace the army. He didn't make the army worse than it was supposed to be. He made it better than it was supposed to be. And why is it that the king of Syria thought him to be a great and an honorable man? We'll look back in your text. Because by him, that is by Naaman, by him, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Let's look at that phrase. Because by him... The Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. This was why he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, who was the king of Syria. He was a winner, and even more, God made him a winner. 
God delivered Syria through Naaman. It said the Lord had given him deliverance. If I'm a king, I want that guy running my army. He's great, he's honorable, and God uses him to give deliverance to my people. That's my captain of the host, that's my general, and that's who Naaman was to the king of Syria. And normally in the Old Testament, we read about God giving deliverance to Israel, don't we? He delivered his people out of the hand of their enemies. He delivered his people out of the hand of the Philistines, out of the hand of the Egyptians. And in fact, in Exodus 18 and verse 9, Exodus 18 and verse 9, it says, and this was speaking of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And we also read of God delivering Israel into the hand of her enemies. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Judges 13, verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. Did you see what happened before God delivered them? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the key. I have not found a place, and I read for some time period Saturday, but I have not found a place where it said God gave deliverance to another Gentile nation. Although it may be somewhere uh, that I don't remember offhand, but at least it's fair to say it would be a rare thing for the Bible to say God delivered this Gentile nation or gave them deliverance. It's, it's maybe not a one-time occurrence, but it's certainly rare. In fact... We happen to know of one occasion on which God did give deliverance to Syria. Because you may be reading this saying, well, when did the Lord deliver Syria? Well, let's go back and remember again from 1 Kings chapter 22. You may recall a little bit about our study that day that Ahab called upon his false prophets about whether he should go to Ramoth-Gilead of Syria and take it back. And his false prophets all came to him and said, yes, go. And they gave these cute little object lessons. Oh, you'll push, push him with a horn and you'll do all of this different stuff and you'll prevail. But then King Jehoshaphat was there and he said, is there a prophet of the Lord besides? He knew those guys weren't prophets of the Lord. He said, is there a prophet of the Lord besides? And, of course, Ahab had to admit, yeah, there's, there's Micaiah. And Micaiah doesn't speak kind things concerning me. He doesn't speak good concerning me. But, yeah, he's a prophet of the Lord. And so, the, to put it briefly, God's prophet Micaiah said, don't do it, Ahab. Don't you go. Ahab went anyway. And what did the Syrians do? They fatally wounded him. And on that day, God gave deliverance 
to Syria against Israel. Why did he do it? Because just as was the case back in the book of Judges, they did evil in the sight of the Lord again. So when God gave deliverance to a Gentile nation over Israel, or when he delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies, like the Egyptians, the Philistines, and the Midianites, and so forth, it was always, always because Israel disobeyed the Lord. At no time in the Old Testament do you read of Israel walking with the Lord and God just deciding to play a trick on them and say, you know what, you guys are doing great, but I'm still going to put you through the fire and make you suffer with the Babylonians or with the Egyptians. It was always because of disobedience. It says at the end of verse 1, looking back in your text, 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're just joining us online, verse 1 at the end, it says, He was also a mighty man in valor. A mighty man in valor, or of valor. And valor comes from the same word as the word host or army. So you could substitute the word army right there. He was a mighty man in army or in things of the army. He was the head of the army. He was a great and honorable man in the sight of his king and a mighty man of the army. So what a what a resume here. Naaman was a tough customer. He was a great leader and he was a good man. But look at the last thing in that verse. But he was a leper. Leprosy was a terrible disease. Still is, wherever it exists in the world. It's contagious. People with leprosy were considered unclean. Israelites with leprosy had an entire section in the Old Testament law dedicated to how they were to be handled. From the detection of the leprosy, what to do with the clothes, what to do about people who had come in contact with the leper, where they had to to sleep and the, the purification process. In fact, a great part of Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 deal with this disease. So leprosy was a significant problem in the Old Testament or in throughout the Bible, not just the Old Testament. So that's leprosy. Now, if you back up and take a bigger look at leprosy, what is what does it represent? It represents sin. Leprosy is a type of sin. Leprosy comes from sin, meaning that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Adam, we forfeited our right to live forever on this perfect earth that God had created. We tainted it with sin, and so what are the wages of sin? It's death, right? Death by all kinds of means. Death by what I just told you about at the beginning. Sometimes we uh, we die in car crashes. Sometimes we have heart attacks or cancer gets us or we get bit by a snake or we have leprosy. All kinds of ways, but it all comes down to one thing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So leprosy was one of the very brutal ways a person could die in those days. Leprosy, as it represents sin, it makes one unclean. It separates 
the leper from society. And the leper has to be made clean before he or she can come back to the camp. All of Naaman's greatness, all of his magnificence, his honor, his might, his valor are overshadowed by this one thing. He was a leper. And none of those things could cure him of his leprosy. And all of the excellence and beauty and power, money, good health that some or all of us enjoy are overshadowed by one thing. We are sinners, just like Naaman was a leper. We're sinners and the sentence of death. In fact, we're spiritual lepers. And the sentence of death is upon us if we remain in that condition. And I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death. If a leper, which is a physical disease, remains in his condition, he will die of the leprosy. If a sinner who is a spiritual leper remains in his sin, just goes on and lives his life and never does anything about it, doesn't put his faith in Jesus, then he will die in his sin. So he will die not only a physical death, but also a spiritual death. Be separated from God forever, judged at the great white throne judgment, cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. And that's that's the result of one being an unchanged spiritual leper. Verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Why are the Syrians being allowed to bring Israelites captive to their land again? Because Israel wasn't minding their father. They weren't minding the Lord. They forsook his statutes and commandments, and they went a-whoring after other gods. They stepped away from God's word. Verse 3, this little maid is talking now. It says, and she said unto her mistress, now that would be Naaman's wife, would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Now, if you're not too familiar with the way the King James translation reads, when you see the word would, it means I wish. If you see would to God or would God, that means I wish God or I wish to God. So that's what she's saying is, I wish to God that my Lord, with a little L, meaning her master, Naaman, Naaman was not her God. He was her Lord in a, in a human sense. He was her master. That he were with the prophet in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So this little maid, whose name is not given, was already a great witness and a faithful servant. No doubt when she was captured, she was not willing to go into captivity. I doubt she said, oh, I'm so glad you guys are here to take me away from my friends and family and my hometown and everyone I know and love 
and take me captive against my will to another place where I have to serve with rigor. I'm sure she didn't say that. She probably was not willing. But once she arrived, once she took her new station as a servant to the mistress of Naaman and ultimately to Naaman, she showed herself to be a woman of integrity and a woman of compassion. She could have just said, knowing Naaman had leprosy, well, I'll just let him suffer. That's what he gets for taking me prisoner. That'll teach him. She could have said nothing. But she cared for him in spite of her own circumstances. Now I'll tell you to this day, it amazes me that a person who has been victimized by a criminal can turn around in court and forgive them. Now that's, if they're truly forgiving them, that's as Christ-like as you get. What did Jesus do on the cross? And he had not committed a crime. He was, the world would call him a victim. The world would call him a martyr. He saw himself as neither. He was God and the Son of God taking our sins upon himself. But in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of Pontius Pilate and Pilate's wife, he was a just man. He hadn't done anything wrong. And yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, think about this little maid. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward or the crooked. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, we could say, without knowing more specifics here, that she was in a position where she suffered wrongfully, at least in the eyes of the world. She was taken a prisoner of war from her own country. She wasn't a soldier. She was a little maid. She wasn't fighting anybody. She was at home doing whatever little maids do in Israel, doing her job. And she suffered for it, yet she took it patiently because she said, if you would send Naaman, my master, to the man of God there in Syria, he'll recover him. He'll heal him of his leprosy. And that, sir, that prophet in Samaria, if you remember, was Elisha. Now let's look at that. It said, the maid testified he would recover him of his leprosy. Now that's a lot of faith, isn't it? Here she is, a prisoner of war, serving the captain of the host who could have her head taken off at any time he wanted. He could just speak the word and it would be done. And for her to be so bold as to say, if you'll send the captain of the host of Syria back to Samaria where you captured me from, then there's a prophet there who will heal him 
of his leprosy. That's a pretty bold statement to make to say, if you'll go back into enemy territory, there's somebody there who'll help you. Almost like the government wanting to help you, isn't it? He would recover him of his leprosy. That is, he would heal him of his leprosy. Now get this, the woman told her that there was a man sent from God who would heal Naaman of his leprosy. She bore witness of this prophet whom the Lord sent. Now keep that in mind. And I'm going to read to you from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And you tell me if there's not a parallel right here. John 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. God sent this Israelite woman into the house of Naaman by his providence. Into the house of Naaman who was a leper. And she testified of a man who was sent from God who could heal Naaman's leprosy. John the Baptist was a man sent from God into this world of spiritual lepers. And he testified of a man sent from God, Jesus, who could heal those sinners. See that? It's, that's parallel. Those are two tracks running right next to each other. Verse 4, And one went in and told his Lord, now that would be the king of Syria, told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said. Okay, I'm stopping right there so that you'll understand why I said, verse 4, his Lord must be the king of Syria. That's not just my opinion. I didn't come up with that. Uh, try not to do that. I want to give you a reason for it. And so this is a little little help for you when you study your Bible. Always read the next verse. If you're confused about what a verse says, go ahead and read the next verse or two or three, and then go back and start over in the passage if you're still confused, and read it together again, and it'll usually help you understand. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll have to do a little more in-depth study. But in this case, the one went in and told his Lord, and what was the next thing we read? And the king of Syria said, go to. In other words... After this servant came in and said, hey, king, here's what this little maid said. The king turned around and says, go to. In other words, here's your assignment. Go to, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed. So the servant departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. So having heard this potentially great life-saving news, hope for Naaman the, the, the leper, the Syrian king sent a letter to the king of Israel, and his name was Jehoram, if you remember. This may have been like a courtesy letter, just letting the king of Israel know that he planned to send Naaman for a visit. And in addition to the letter, the king sent 
silver and gold and clothing. And this was so unnecessary. The healing from the Lord through Elisha did not require silver or gold or clothing. But that's how the world thinks. In Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 20, listen to this for the familiar theme that we just talked about. Acts 8, verses 18 through 20. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Remember, we're looking at a similarity between leprosy and sin. And the price paid for the forgiveness of sin was not silver, or gold, or raiment, clothing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 tells us that very specifically. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter specifically showed us the contradiction between silver and gold and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ. One doesn't get the other. The silver and gold has nothing to do with salvation. And for the Syrian king to suppose that sending silver and gold and clothing would play a part in healing Naaman's leprosy was carnal. That was carnal. And he truly did not understand God's grace. Verse 6, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, and now this means this is what the letter said, now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Boy, what a miscommunication. The Syrian king wrote in his letter to Jehoram that thou may recover him of his leprosy. It was the prophet Elisha, not the king of Israel, who would be called on to recover Naaman of his leprosy. But that's not what the Syrian king wrote, is it? He addressed it to the wrong person. The healing of a leper was not a matter that was to be dealt with by Israel's government, but by Israel's God. It'd solve a lot of our problems, wouldn't it? If we, as a country, quit going to the government for solutions and went to God. That just simplifies everything when you do that. Verse 7, And it came to pass, 
when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes. Now that means he tore them, tore them off, and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. So upon reading this letter, King Jehoram had a come apart, didn't he? He tore his clothes, and rhetorically he said, Am I God? Now he wasn't asking somebody to say yes or no. For he knew he wasn't God, and he knew that only God could heal a leper. And he said, am I God to kill and make alive? Meaning that healing the leper would give life. But not healing the leper would result in certain death. And this is the responsibility God carries, and he does it perfectly and righteously. And King Jehoram could not and would not accept that heavy burden. In fact, he assumed that the sending of this letter was to pick a fight with him. See how he seeketh a quarrel against me? In other words, is he trying to start something with me by asking me to do something he knows I can't do? In the eyes of Jehoram, the Syrian king was asking him to do the impossible. And upon that, If Jehoram could not heal Naaman, that would disappoint, maybe even enrage that Syrian king. And if he enraged the Syrian king, that might be reason enough to have a fight. What should King Jehoram have said, though? He should have simply said, I can't heal him, but I know one who can. That's the answer to that question. That's what we do when people come to us with spiritual problems, either in person or online or on the phone, however they do it. Some people wanting us to save them. And we know that no man can save in the spiritual sense, only God can. But think about people who have come out of a false religion, where their religious leader was built up as someone who can save spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally, every other way and that they attribute to that leader all kinds of power and ability to heal and condemn and save and all that. But if somebody comes to us with that sort of quandary, we don't have a meltdown like Jehoram did. He was spiritually weak. We just point them to the one who can help them. That's what we do. It's easy. Because like this little maid, we believe that all they need is from us is for us to show them Jesus. Say, I can't, but he can. And that's what we do when we teach them God's word. And with that, we'll close and we'll pick up verse 8 next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone who came and for the good attention by those who are here, those who are on the Internet. And, Father, I pray that you would take the truth from your word today. And help us to remember it, to meditate upon it, and to live by it. Bless our pastor and the congregation during the next hour as we worship you. We pray to do it in spirit and in truth. And that the distractions of the world will not hinder our assembly and our study of your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen.